Today's a big day. Hey, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Jesse. I'm part of the pastoral team here at Sierra Bible, and we want to welcome you. Uh, if you are new or if uh, you're here visiting, you want to know more about us, we have an app on the App Store uh, for our church, SBC Truckee, uh, and so we're Sierra Bible Church Truckee. Uh, if you want to download that, it'll tell you all the things that are happening. We have quite a bit of things that are going on at our church uh, any given time in different seasons. Uh, and if you would like, if you're new, if you want a gift at the uh, info booth, we have a gift for you uh, as a new, uh, a new person here. So I want to welcome you. Uh, and if you want a Bible, the ushers are, are, are handing them out. Um, you guys got, got me a little, a little revamped here during worship. Uh, after the first service, I was starting to feel a little, a little drained. And uh, you guys clapping and singing, I think I might be ready for round two. So um, I was, uh, yeah. Jesus. Um, I, uh, it's funny, I was, um, you know, every year when, when Easter comes around, pastors are wrestling to find a new uh, or a fresh way to preach the gospel. And um, I was listening to one of my pastor buddies, and he said, you know, your people are so excited to come to church on Easter. You could read the phone book, and they would be excited. Uh, and so if you have the yellow pages, please turn there now, and we'll... Uh... No, I think we have something unique for you this morning. Um, I want to cover the goal of this morning is to give you an overview of this gospel, the gospel of Mark. And as we do this overview, uh, we're going to dig in each week even deeper in the coming months for those of you who are regulars here. But I wanted to give you this testimony from Mark. So Mark actually wrote this gospel for Peter. Uh, Another title for this gospel, if you're in there, would be the memoirs of Peter. Peter, who walked with Jesus and saw what Jesus did and what Jesus accomplished and saw the life of Jesus and tried to answer the questions of who is this Jesus, who is this Christ, uh, Mark wrote this down on his behalf. I have three points this morning, hopefully for you to walk away with and be encouraged uh, with hopes to follow who Christ is. Uh, The big picture of this morning is to follow Jesus, to be amazed by this Jesus, this servant Jesus, one of the main markers of this book is to lay out for us that Jesus overcomes the world, overcomes sin and darkness through servanthood. And so we'll look at the servant's identity this morning. We will also look at the servant's work and then the primacy of this servant. This book reads a lot like a comic book. It's very fast. It moves very quickly. One of the main words in this book actually is the word immediately. And so he moves very quickly. And what happens in Mark chapter 1, if you're there, is it says this, quite simply and very rapidly in Mark chapter 1, here's the first words, the beginning. I think it's interesting you take note of that because it actually is the same words that were used in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning. He then goes on to state what is beginning and what what is new of the gospel of who this is his identity jesus christ the son of god now what's interesting if you remember you look back in genesis and there was a beginning there and that beginning was that mankind you and i would walk all the days of our life with god in peace in in simplicity if you will in the garden there would be no sin there would be no death there would be no disease there would be no shame there would be no condemnation it would be perfection 
And then we know that Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and because of that rebellion, sin, death, and disease entered into the world. Thus, we have in the Old Testament really a big picture of what happens when man rejects God. And then, after a few hundred years of silence, God speaks again, and he speaks to, this is the oldest gospel there is out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in this gospel, he starts in the beginning. He's letting us know that through Jesus, as this man comes from the Virgin Mary, this Jesus is giving us a new fresh start, a new beginning, a new genesis, if you will. And he's introducing to the sacred scriptures a new genre, which is called the gospel. And the gospel literally means good news. How many of you need some good news this morning? How many need to just turn off CNN and turn off Fox and turn off social media and, and get away from all of the negativity? And that is what this Sunday is all about for us on Easter. It's the good news of Jesus. And that identity of Jesus, that word that's used for Jesus Christ, literally means anointed one or Messiah. He is the long-awaited king of the Jews that the Jews have been waiting for, praying for, looking for in scripture and looking for the appearance of. And now we're being told in this new genre, in this new beginning, Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God has come and he's come specifically to serve. That's what the book is all about. Can I ask you a quick little question? When was the last time you went out to eat? You don't have to answer out loud. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but the last few years have really kind of taken service, the idea of service, the idea of eating out at a restaurant, it, it's just kind of tanked, has it not? If, if we're really honest, you know that if you go to eat somewhere, the service isn't going to be what it was pre-pandemic. Would you agree with me on this? It just doesn't seem to be the way that it used to be. I'll give you an exception. My, uh, one of my elders, one of our leaders, we uh, had a meeting the other day, a couple weeks ago, at Wagon Train. Now, I don't know how many of you have had the opportunity to go eat at Wagon Train recently, but they are the opposite of service. I, I think Brad and I refused coffee at least 15 times. There were only two waitresses in there running back and forth, and they were actually, it almost felt like they were competing for who could give us more coffee. And at one point, I looked at Brad and was like, my other elder, and I was like, this is, this, is almost, this is almost comical and almost ridiculous. The service there was amazing. It was out of this world. And some of you might know the story uh, of Siobhan, who owns uh, Wagon Train in the last, I think, 30-some years. She's only closed uh, the restaurant twice. Both of them were for Easter last year and this year. So Wagon Train was closed this morning. If you want service, you're going to have to go home. <laughs> this Jesus, through Mark, through Peter's testimony who walked with, with him, is sharing with us that he is this servant king. This is who he is. Mark chapter 1 verses 2 onward tell us of a, a guy by the name of John the Baptist, a unique character who shows up on the scene. He's crying out in the wilderness and he's telling people to make their paths straight. Get your lives together. And he continues to preach this, this gospel of repentance that we would turn from our sins. 
He says, one is going to come who's greater than I. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals, speaking of the Messiah. And then in verse 9 of chapter 1, Jesus shows up with John the Baptist, and John the Baptist, to his surprise, is basically commanded to baptize this Jesus. And Jesus is baptized in the Jordan, and as he comes up out of the water, through the Holy Spirit, this word immediately comes And he saw the heavens being torn open, the spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So we see this identity of Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is the son whom Jesus is pleased. He is a servant, and he has come, we're told in Mark chapter 1 verse 14, to establish his kingdom says this, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. There it is. This good news that man can be reconciled back to God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is the identity of Jesus. He has come to bring incredible good news to mankind, incredible peace to mankind. He's fulfilling scripture that has been in place for 1,400 years to establish this kingdom, but a kingdom of servanthood. Then we begin to get into this servant's work. It has been told to us very quickly in Mark, just in chapter 1 alone, that he is the Son of God, that he is the servant of God, that he is the Messiah, and he has come to bring good news. And then very rapidly, we get into the good works of Jesus. And these good works are to give us a glimpse into what the kingdom of God is all about. And we see in the book of Mark all kinds of miracles taking place. In fact, in Mark, 20 of the 37 recorded miracles of Jesus are in the book of Mark. Out of the 37, 20 of them, most of them are in the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1, verse 27 says, because of these things, because of Jesus, they were all amazed. This is actually in chapter 1 mentioned three times. Amazement, astonishment. It's also a word that connotates being afraid or being terrified by what they're seeing in this Christ. And that they were so amazed, it says, that they questioned the, the wording there is literally they debated. They were having arguments amongst themselves saying, who is this? What is this teaching, this new authority he has? He commands even the unclean spirits to obey him. We see demons being cast out. He drives out an evil spirit. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He heals a multitude of the sick. He cleanses a man of leprosy. And that's all just in chapter 1. And the, the disciples are going in astonishment and unbelief, who is this man? And if that wasn't enough, Jesus pushes the authority even farther, and he pushes his miraculous uh, abilities even farther in Mark chapter 2, verse 5, by forgiving sins. And he hears, heals a paralytic man. He then go on, goes on to say to him in chapter 2, verse 5, your sins are forgiven. To which the religious people said, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming because who can forgive sins but God alone? See, Jesus is showing us and he's showing his disciples that he and he alone has the power of God, that he and he alone is God, and he and he alone has the ability to forgive sins. If that wasn't enough in this short but powerful book with that word immediately appearing over and over again, he heals a paralytic through a roof. 
He heals a man's withered hand. He heals on the Sabbath, though he's not supposed to. He calms the storms, and he casts demons out of one man and forces them to go into pigs. He heals a woman's blood flow issue. He raises a daughter from the dead. At one point, he feeds 5,000. At another point, he feeds another 4,000 miraculously. He walks on water. He heals even more people. He casts out even more demons. At one point, a father comes and says of his only son, he's demon-possessed. And Jesus says, do you believe I can heal him? And the man says, I believe. And then the famous wording afterwards, help my unbelief. And then in addition to that, he continues to preach God's message, preach God's kingdom to people. He helps disciple the disciples. He battles the Pharisees. He teaches on what it is to have a healthy family. He teaches on what it is to have healthy children of faith. He warns of the riches of the world. This is Jesus' work. This is Jesus' identity. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's establishing his kingdom on earth. And just like today, in this room, if you're hearing this message for the first time, there are various responses to the great claims of who Christ is. In fact, in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, one of those responses reads as follows. For they were saying of Jesus, he is out of his mind. He's claiming to be God. His own family even believed he's confused. He's lost since, right? We all have crazy family members, don't we? Yeah, you're going to hang out with some of them later today, pretty sure. And it says the, the scribes came down from Jerusalem saying this of Jesus, he's possessed by the devil, the prince of demons. He casts out demons because he himself is demon possessed. To which Jesus says, that doesn't make any sense. A kingdom divided against itself can not stand. Some will follow. That's some of you this morning. You are here because you've chosen to follow Jesus and you need your faith strengthened. You need to be reminded of the reality of who Christ is, that he forgives you of your sins, that he's with you and he's not far from you. So some will follow. Others, others will leave today just as they did in Jesus' day and not know what to think of it all. They'll just choose to kind of say, I don't know. Or as Pilate said when he sent Jesus over to be crucified, what is truth? How can I know this is true? The day of relativism reigns over our culture very heavily. Others will reject him outright, especially the religious leaders. They'll call him a heretic. They call him filled with Satan himself. Some of you will remember the great quote by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was known as saying when we actually look at the life of Jesus, the claims of Jesus, the identity of Jesus, this, this particular servant of God, one has to come to the conclusion that he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. In fact, though we attribute this quote to C.S. Lewis, this actually, this actually was a, a phrase coined much earlier by a, by a guy by the name of John Duncan. John Duncan lived in 1796 through 1870. Upon studying the life of Jesus, he formulated what is called a trilemma, which is greater than a dilemma. He said, within that trilemma, as you study the life and claims of Christ, you have to come to one of three conclusions. One, he either deceived mankind by conscious fraud. He knew what he was doing. Two, 
He was himself deluded and self-deceived. He was crazy. Or three, he was divine. John Duncan went on to say, there's no getting out of this trilemma. It's inexorable. You can't get away from it. You have to come to a conclusion about Jesus. As you leave this place this morning with that trilemma in its place, you have to decide who is this Jesus who walked this earth perfectly for 33 years, who made claims of deity for 33 years, who lived and then died, and then, my friends, was raised again from the dead. What will you do with this Jesus? There is a trilemma. Jesus actually likens this response in Mark chapter 4 to a seed that the gospel message, the good news of which he is to preach, is like a seed. It's small, like a mustard seed, but it becomes very large. It looks insignificant, but has great impact. He says upon sowing that seed, which represents the word of God and the message of God, some of that seed will be picked up by birds. Some of that seed will fall on rocky ground, and when it springs up because of no depth of soil, it will die. Some of that seed will be choked out by thorns. Jesus later goes on to say that this is an example of how many will receive the gospel. Some, Satan will take away immediately. You'll leave here, and boom, the devil will be at work to take away the message of Christ. Or some will have their joy stolen from them simply because life is hard. And others, the seed will be taken away because they're just too entrenched in the joys or the lack of joy or the temporal joys of the world and its pleasures. That's true of all of us today. Who is this Jesus? What will we do with him? If someone was standing outside this morning, walking around the parking lot with a cross on his shoulder and was yelling out to you that he was Jesus, what would you think of such a man? I lived in San Diego for several years, and there was a guy who was well-known in the San Diego area. Maybe if you're from there at all, if you've ever been there, you might remember this, or maybe you've even seen him, but there was a man who walked around in Pacific Beach almost daily dressed as Jesus with a cross upon his shoulder, dragging it around the community, yelling at people as they went by that he was the Messiah. What would you think of that man? You'd think he's nuts. Anybody looking forward to going down to Pacific Beach maybe? Maybe you'll travel down there as an evangelist and you'll invite him into your home and hang out with your kids. Is that what you're going to do with a man like that? We would call him nuts. Again, This is the dilemma that we have. That's kind of act one in the book of Mark. The identity and the work of Jesus, and then the work of Jesus continues in act two in the chapters of eight through ten of Mark. In eight through ten, Jesus literally starts to set his face towards Jerusalem, from Galilee to Jerusalem, with the purpose of dying on the cross. Within this segment, the disciples and Jesus enter into three separate conversations, all of which the same message is repeated. In Mark chapter 8, verse 27, as they were walking towards Jerusalem, Jesus asked his disciples, much as I just asked you, who do people say that I am? The disciples answered, some say John the Baptist, which is interesting because John died in chapter 1. Others say Elijah, and some say the prophets. But Jesus said to him, said to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter, here's a surprise, Peter's the first one to answer. First one to speak up, 
First one to be bold, if you know the life of Peter. He's the memoir guy who's helped write this book. And he states, I know who you are. You're the Messiah. Now, as we read that, we might look and say, look, Peter got something right here. But he didn't. Upon further reading, you start to understand that what Peter's understanding of Jesus was and what Peter's understanding of what the Messiah was and what the disciples' understanding of the Messiah was was that the Messiah would come with sword, scepter, and shield. And because the people have been in exile and because the people had basically been under the providence of Rome and ruled by Nero, in fact, this book was written during the days of Nero. Nero literally would take Christians, light them on fire, and use them as candles for his parties. This is the persecuted church. And under this persecution and under this hardship, we read that Peter's response in part is, you're going to take over the world and with military might, you're going to overthrow the Romans. But instead, Jesus claims not to overthrow the Roman Empire or overthrow the ugliness of the world with political power or with military might, but he then begins to tell them he must suffer and he must die. The words that follow, again, are amazement and confusion, more debate from the disciples, which we then enter into conversation number two. In Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37, Jesus takes his disciples to the top of a mountain known as the Mount of Transfiguration. There, the power of Jesus is shown and glorified to be the better than Moses. It's echoing back to Mount Sinai when God gave his law and an introduction to possible salvation. It's showing us here that on this mountain that Jesus is the embodiment of God's glory. This is who Jesus is. This is why Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're to see this moment as, as quite amazing and quite beautiful. And on the heels of that, the disciples end up saying, you know what? Let's build a tent here and never leave. This is what the kingdom of God has got to be like. This is what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. Let's never go back down to earth. We're having a mountain experience. And yet Jesus says no. They start to head down the mountain. And very quickly in verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them not to tell anyone what they had seen until he had risen from the dead. And then in verse 31, he adds to it, he was teaching his disciples that the Son of Man was going to be delivered that is handed over for judgment of sin into the hands of sinners, into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And then he tells them, in three days I'll rise again. This is the conversation. You think I'm a Messiah. You think I'm going to come with a scepter. You think I'm going to come with a sword. You think I'm going to come with a shield. No, I'm going to die. The disciples are much confused they don't understand what is happening. And then conversation three occurs. There's a thrice here. That number three is important. And in conversation number three, they're heading towards Jerusalem. It tells us that they were amazed. And then he tells them the things that are going to happen to him. And in Mark 10, 43, the famous line of Mark, whoever would be great amongst you must be your servant, and whoever would be first must be your slave. For even the Son of Man... The Son of God himself came not to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the disciples are looking for this military might. They're looking for the sword to be mighty. They're looking for the scepter and the king to rule, to overthrow Rome, to overthrow Nero, and to overthrow the evil government. And yet Jesus says that the kingdom of God is not won over with violence, but is rather won through dying. Jesus is letting his followers know that to be a Christian, to follow Jesus, is a lot like dying to self. It's a lot like rejecting self, and it's a lot like being a servant. In fact, Jesus will tell us on many occasions in the Gospels, in order to live, you must die. That one must be born again. And this is why Colossians says, you have died and your life is hidden in Christ. Luke 9.23 says, deny yourself. Galatians 2.20 says that we've been crucified with Christ. In order to follow this man, this servant, We have to not only understand who he is, we have to understand how he wins the world. And it's not through strength. It's not in a way that seems to be natural. His disciples, again, are confused. They're amazed. They don't know what to do with this. And then finally, we enter into Act 3, the primacy of Christ. The last eight days of Jesus... The last eight days are actually covered in some of the largest segment of Mark, chapters 11 all the way through chapter 16. Those are just eight days recorded there. And what we find in his final days is this paradox of Jesus' kingdom and how he establishes it here on earth. It's quite interesting. In Mark chapter 11, we see the royal entry of Jesus. He enters into Jerusalem on Sunday the last Sunday we just celebrated, not riding a valiant steed, a white, beautiful horse. Instead, he enters into Jerusalem on a Monday, I'm sorry, on a Sunday, riding Shrek's donkey. It's the paradox. The king does not ride in with might and power, but rather on a humble donkey. And on that particular Sunday, the people cried out, Hosanna, that he is the king. It's a royal entry. And then upon that royal entry, the next day, on a royal Monday, Jesus shows his authority in the temple. He literally walks into the temple on Monday after riding the donkey and turns the tables over in the temple because the religious leaders are taking advantage of God's people. Basically, Jesus' message is, my father's house is not here to make money. My father's house is not a business. My father's house is a house of prayer. He's letting all the religious leaders, all of the religious right, all of those who think they're, they're godly, and he's letting them know, you are keeping people from knowing who I am. Your money is in the way. The riches are in the way. He shows that he and he alone has the authority to tell the religious leaders what church should look like. Not what man thinks it should be, but what he thinks it should be. Then on Tuesday, Mark chapter 13, he tells the disciples something very interesting about this very ornate and large temple that existed on the mount. He says this temple will actually fall But take heart, because in three days I will rise it up again. To which many are saying, Lord, (laughs) have you seen the stones? 
You couldn't tear down this temple in three days. You couldn't tear it down. You could, you, there's no way you could, and let alone build it in three days. Who do you think that you are? It's another amazing, astonishing quote from Jesus. And of course, now for those of us who know, he was actually speaking of the temple of his own body, that it would be crucified and that it would be raised again on the third day. And here Jesus is letting them know, yep, I'm the new temple. And in 70 AD, this temple literally is destroyed and no temple has ever taken its place, my friends, because when you are in a relationship with Christ, you understand he's the temple. And when you receive him in faith, he makes you his temple. So therefore, wherever you go, Jesus goes. That is an amazing reality of people of faith. We don't have a holy site to go visit. We don't have a temple to go sacrifice in because Christ is with us always, everywhere. He tells them in addition that they will also be persecuted. But then on Thursday, in those last eight days of Jesus, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. It's his last meal before death. A death he doesn't deserve to die, but he knows he will be executed and he chooses to spend his last meal with his disciples, the Passover meal. The meal that celebrated that those of faith who covered their do doorpost with blood on the Passover, that God would pass over them and death would not enter their home. But if the blood did not cover the door, death would visit the home and take the firstborn. This meal was to celebrate God's graciousness that God, because of their faith, saved them, not because of anything they had done. They continued to celebrate this for 1,400 years. And to the disciples, again, shock, amazement. What? You're saying that the last 1,400 years of this meal points to you? And Jesus says what they don't understand, that the bread represents his broken body and that the blood represents his blood. And he says, you've got to eat it. And they're literally thinking, the, the disciples are literally thinking, who is this man telling us to eat his body? That is literally what they thought. They took it very literally. This man who says he's the Messiah, he surely has to be a lunatic. Again, imagine sitting there at this table and a man drinks this cup and says, this is my blood. Do this often. Drink it often. Remember often. Drink of my blood. You would think you were in some kind of weird vampirical thing. But that's not the case. It's to help us remember the sacrifice that Jesus does for us on the cross. The meal is instituted on Thursday. He's arrested that evening. And then on Friday, we know that Jesus is crucified. After being betrayed by one of his disciples, even, even though he loved that disciple, he still washed that disciple's feet. In Mark chapter 14, verse 43, they came with clubs. Judas kisses him, and he's arrested. Eventually going to the place of Pilate in Mark chapter 15, I think my slides are off a little bit here. Um, Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. I want you to take note. Barabbas was a murderer. Barabbas was an evil man. He goes free, and Jesus instead is arrested 
and scourged and whipped. The process of scourging was a violent one. Some of you may remember the Passion of the Christ. I don't know how many of you uh, can remember how controversial that film was when it came out. People were just astonished that someone would release a film with an R rating about Jesus. Because in that film, it is depicted the violence that Christ went through and what Christ suffered. I watched it with our church in San Diego when it first came out. There wasn't a dry eye in the room realizing that we are the Barabbas that is set free and Jesus is the one who takes the beating that Barabbas and you and I deserved. Jesus would have been whipped multiple times to the point of where the soldiers would have been exhausted. The tool of which he was whipped with had iron balls at the end of it, had broken pieces of sheep bone, glass, metal, anything that they could attach to the end of this, and they would whip him, taking turns over and over and over again until they were exhausted. Bone would have been revealed. Deep blood vessels would have been revealed. Even organs would been, had been revealed. The Bible literally tells us that it is an R-rated type image. The passion doesn't even do it justice. Scriptures tell us that his beard was plucked from his face, faith, and that he was his face, and that he was beaten beyond human recognition. That if you saw his face, you literally would not be able to tell whether it was human or animal. This is the beating that Jesus took. And he did not open his mouth like a sheep that is silent before its shears. They placed a bag over his head and they beat him and they mocked him. Oh, hail king of the Jews. You're the Messiah. You're the king. Prophesy who hit you now. And they'd strike him again and again and again and again. Later, he would have to carry this 100-pound cross as far as he could before another gentleman took it for him. But once he came place of Golgotha, the place of the skull, they nailed him to that cross. They raised him in the air between two thieves, one of which is encouraged to see Jesus in paradise because of his faith. But they spit on him, mocked him, they put a clove, a purple robe on him, a crown of thorns upon his head, and it was such a sad day, scripture says. And Mark, it says that there was darkness. The sun stopped shining. This day was such a sad day, such a painful day, such an awful day, the sun stopped shining. The same time there was an earthquake, the veil torn in two, and Jesus cries out with a voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did you remember in the beginning of Mark, a voice comes from heaven below. From heaven, God the Father speaks to his Son, with you whom I am well pleased. Now at the end of Mark, Jesus raises his voice to the Father. Where are you? Jesus was separated from the Father that you and I would be connected with the Father forever that the death of sin would be put to death because of Jesus. What the cross shows us is that Jesus takes your shame and he takes your guilt 
and he takes your depression, and he takes your struggle, he takes your travail, he takes all of your hardships, and he nails it to the cross, and then the next day he was laid in a empty grave. And when he was placed in that grave, Mark tells us he was wrapped in a linen shroud. This is interesting because earlier in the Gospels, it tells us that when Jesus was born as a baby, he was wrapped in swaddling cloths. Little did his mother know that that baby who was wrapped in baby's clothing would not too far off in the distant future be wrapped in the clothing of a dead man. And he was placed in that tomb and the stone was rolled over and he was laid there to slowly rot away forever and ever. Yesterday, we celebrated what many call a holy Saturday. I think a better term is a silent Saturday. The disciples were wondering, where is our Jesus and where is our Savior? This has been the man of miracles who walked on water, who had power over disease, power over death, and yet he couldn't save himself from a cross. In their minds, they're so wrapped up in this death. They're so wrapped up in this burial. They can't remember all of the times that Jesus has stated, I'm going to have to die. Their memories are short. Is that the same for anyone else this morning? And then, after a silent Saturday, came a royal Sunday. Mark records it for us in a very interesting way. It ends very abruptly. But before I get there, I want you to understand something. These women, they go to the tomb, and the tomb is empty. Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. He's not there. Where is this guy? In fact, Mark chapter 16, verse 1 tells us, Mary Magdalene, the Mary, uh, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices to Jesus that they might go and anoint him. They're so desperate to see this Messiah again. They know he's still dead. They believe he's still dead. They're expecting to see a dead body. They're hoping to get inside past this rock so they can see Jesus one more time. And then it says, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us? I mean, imagine this. I just want you to understand that the, 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 the first people at the cross, ladies. The first people at the tomb, ladies. Something unique about women, the compassion and the love they have to follow Christ. And as they're walking with their spices, as they're mourning with one another, who's going to roll the tomb away that we can see our dead Savior? And then when they got there, they looked up. They saw that the stone had been rolled back. Again, Mark reads like a comic book. And this is all it says about the stone. It was very large. <laughs> and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. They look in the tomb. Jesus is not there. In his place is an angel. And the only response to an empty tomb where a dead man lay, and the only response to seeing an angel in the tomb is that response. They're alarmed. The angel knows this, and he says to them, don't be. Don't be alarmed. I know who you seek. Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, he has risen he is not here. 
See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going before you to Galilee. What is he saying? He, okay, he was in Jerusalem. He's going back to Galilee. Remember, ladies, he told you he would raise from the dead. He would defeat death. Go back to Galilee, tell them, and in verse 8 it says this, it's very interesting, and they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. Imagine one moment, you're walking, wondering who's going to roll away the stone? How can I see my dead Savior, my dead friend again? And now they're running back to Galilee, completely silent, they have nothing to say. And they went out and they fled from the tomb with this astonishment seizing them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. That is the conclusion of Mark. Now I know in some of your Bibles you'll see another several verses down to 16. The earliest manuscripts don't have those verses. We're not exactly sure why they're there. But it is believed that Mark's intent was to end the gospel just as abruptly and just as quickly as he started the gospel. And the reason for this is to go back to you as the reader. Now that you have heard the identity of Christ, you've seen the work of Christ, you now have to ask the royal question of this royal servant. What will you do with this Christ? Will you run in fear? Will you go and tell Will you see that there's hope and resurrection in the next life to come? Or will you lean into the world for its cultural hope? Which we know is quite void in absence of joy and happiness. Of this resurrection, 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 15 gives us one of the greatest descriptions and arguments of the resurrection. I don't have time to go into all the arguments, but there's an authority argument given by Paul. There's a personal argument of the disciples who literally saw the resurrection of Christ. There's a historical argument that you can go back in the Old Testament and see the fulfillment of prophecy, as well as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, there's at least 600 people who've seen the resurrected Christ. He literally says you can still find many of them today and go and say, did you see the Christ? Are you a real witness of the Christ? And he says you can find them, you can touch them, you can hear them, and they will testify Jesus is alive. But then he gives the logical argument. I've been a pastor since I was the age of 21. I'm now 43. I've done my fair share of weddings. And I've definitely done my fair share of memorials. My very first memorial that I ever had to perform, my wife will remember clearly on this, first one. At the time, I think I was 24 years old. A young family had just lost their six-month-old daughter. Here I am. I have no clue how to minister to this family. All I know is that this family had contacted multiple churches in San Diego County to perform a memorial service for their now gone daughter. Every church they contacted said the fee would be this much for the memorial. This family did not have money. They finally called our church, which was a church and still is a church that is gospel-driven and grace-driven. They said, we absolutely will not charge you. We have a guy for you. And here I went. 
And at no memorial service have I ever seen someone say, well, this is the end. Goodbye. No. Even in unbelieving memorial services, when someone dies, there are always people who say, I know they're in a better place. And I want and I hope to see them again. And Corinthians 15 tells us, in its logical argument of the resurrection and the primacy of Christ is that if Christ was not risen, there is no other resurrection. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, there is no hope for you or me or that child so many years ago to be resurrected from the dead. My friends, what will you do with this Christ Will you be amazed and follow him knowing that he gives you here on this earth life and life abundantly but more importantly when somebody stuffs you in a grave when somebody puts you into ashes and puts you into an urn when somebody says goodbye they could be confident to know it really isn't goodbye for Christ Christ was the firstborn to be resurrected from the dead and you and I will be as well. This is the beginning of the gospel. This is the beginning of the good news. My friends, life may be painful now, but it is but a blip. It is immediate. It is fast. It is quick, just like this book. You're here one day, and then you're not the next day. And if you're a believer in Christ, you have eternity in heaven with no tears, no pain, no sin, no condemnation, no shame, no depression, no negative emotion, just rejoicing in the reality of what it is to live in perfect community. Finally. CNN doesn't have that for you. Fox doesn't have that for you. Twitter and Elon Musk don't have that for you. The word of God and Jesus alone has that word for you. One of the reasons we've started out in Mark this particular Easter is because we're going to keep diving in. And some of you are here this morning and you're visiting and you live in the area. We would say it's time to start coming every week. That you would be refreshed from the good news that you would know his mercies are new every single morning. For some of you, you've come because someone invited you. Maybe today is the day of salvation. It's a day for you to choose to follow Christ. Because really, and ultimately, we all follow something. Jesus is the only way that leads to everlasting life and peace. And then for the rest of you who are family and you're here every week, it's my hope, as it is every Sunday, that your faith is strengthened that you are more resolved to be the light of the world because it is desperate for this hope and this message. The beginning started in Mark, but it's still happening today. And as we just sang, he's resurrecting me. When? Always, for his mercies are new every morning. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, We know that we are only saved by the power of your gospel and your good news. I know, Lord, that because of this message, because of this word, the seed has gone forth. We know the enemy wants to steal it. We know that the cares of the world want to choke it out. 
We know that the riches and pleasures of the world want to take it away. But we would pray that your Holy Spirit would seal that seed in our hearts, that we would be guaranteed our salvation through you because of what you've done. The world is desperate for the forgiveness of sins and is desperate to transform the world not with sword or scepter or shield, but with the heart of a servant. As you washed your disciples' feet, yes, even Judas' feet, would we wash each other's feet and would we wash our enemies' feet in hopes that they would come and proclaim you as Savior? You and you alone are worthy of our worship. And we give it to you now, in Jesus' name, amen. Church, he is risen. Hey, family, let's stand together. Let's uh, proclaim, indeed, that he is the everlasting God, deserving of our praises. I invite you to put your hands together this morning, kind of keep the beat here. Let's uh, bring joy and praise to him. It goes like this. Forever, our hope, our strong delay. 